Okay, and we are live. Welcome everyone to the Feeling Inspired podcast. My aren't you all being treated right now as well? Three in two weeks is quite good, quite a good record for me. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to getting back into the swing of doing all my podcasts. But today uh, I'm looking forward to this incredible episode. I've got a wonderful guest. Before I introduce him though, for any new people watching this who've never seen it before, my name is Amit Soda. This is the Feeling Inspired podcast. I created this because I wanted to not only help people with the relationships and mindset, but also um, in the way that I've been helped in the past by reading something inspiring or hearing something that just completely blew my socks off. I wanted to be able to recreate that for uh, people listening to this or watching this, watching the replay. Uh, and so that is why I am here. And today we've got, a again, a beautiful different topic. We had um, uh, last time we had a lovely lady uh, called Flora uh, and actually Barry and I and Flora all in that same WhatsApp group actually as well, which is why I'm getting this rolling, rolling number of guests, which is great. Um, but we were talking about attachment styles and today we're talking about the trap of co codependency as well. So um, but. Uh, Barry is actually much more than that, so I'm sure we'll be happily digressing into all sorts of areas, but that is the topic we've chosen for today. Uh, and so uh, without further ado as well, yeah, please let's 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 do this, in fact, so let's do it. Uh, oh, by the way, please do follow us, um, like the page as well, feel free to share this stream. And here we go. So Barry, welcome to the Feelings by Podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm great. Thank you, Amit, for inviting me. This is fun. And, and knowing Flora is like, there's such a community we're growing and it's great to be able to collaborate and share and inspire. So I'm looking forward to this. Oh, absolutely. Right. It makes such a huge difference. And as I, I, as I deliberately do, I very rarely get to know my guests off air because I love to do it in its most raw format. And I think it's the best way. Um, I just found out obviously that you're in the West coast, but you're actually originally from Essex in the UK, which is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and you I'm even do right. still have a little bit of the accent left as well, which is great. And you've been there a long time, actually, was it 40 years? 40 years that's kind of like scary went 40 years what happened <laughs> yeah, that's a long time but that's a long time to keep the accent because when i was i was actually born in wales and i came to london and like you know my brother lost the accent within about a year it took me about six seven years so i i had i had the, you know completely ripped into me about the whole um accent thing but um but yeah so um uh um Hold on, I just realized actually one of the goal lives has uh, just failed. So let me just restart that, see if it works. Okay. That is the joy of live broadcasts. Yes, technology at its best. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All righty, it looks like the Facebook stream has failed. So... Facebook glitch, that happens a lot. Yeah, so, um, okay, cool, no worries, we will do without Facebook for today, which is a bit of a shame, but they'll find a way to uh, upload it later manually. Um, right, we're going to continue on here, so for, for my first question, as always, Barry, is I'd love to hear a little bit of your backstory, how did you enter into this strange world of relationships and dating, what led you down this garden path, and, you know, how did you reach this point, how did you learn uh, all the things that you teach people now, and, you know, I'd love to get the full spectrum overview from you. Okay, how much time do you have? Oh <laughs> um, yeah, we got we could use the whole night. It's fine. Let's make this let's make this a record length podcast. <laughs> Just checking. Yeah, I mean, simply put, the reason the reason I do this work is because I made so many mistakes in my own relationship experience, and I've been on a personal growth journey. I mean, I've been in, as we said we talked offline. I've been in America forty years, which is still like what, and that led me into the spirit into the personal growth or personal development arena because I went to my first seminar about um about six months after i got my green card it was so funny it's like i was working freelance and the guy i met took me to the seminar and i fell in love with the work and been on it ever since and i learned lots of stuff i mean i was really getting good at all these skills about how to open my heart and do this deeper work he went on to get my master's degree in spiritual psychology and also became a spiritual counselor at my uh, my spiritual center i go to I had quite a journey but i still kept messing up my relationships you know, I, I knew how to be forgiving. I knew how to do the loving stuff. I knew all these different things, but I kept advocating my role in partnership. And I use the word advocation intentionally because up until 2006, when the last breakup happened, that was really, it was like the same thing happened again. That's one of the clues, by the way, when a relationship breaks up and you look back and go, oh, it's the same as the last time and the one before that and the one before that. I was like, that's a clue something about me. Because if they're all the same, if they're all different people, I'm the common denominator, which is, a, which is a clue I really got quickly. But I still didn't know what it was. But thankfully, she was kind enough. And I, I, whenever, if I ever see her again, which I haven't seen her since, I would thank her because she was the inspiration that changed my life. 
because she told me point blank, <clears throat> excuse me, that I was not the man she thought I was. Because when she'd met me, um, we'd both gone through the same master's degree program and she both went to the same spiritual center. And I was at my spiritual center. I was, I was in leadership roles, taking care of stuff, running stuff. And she thought I was a very like, go um, like committed, goal-oriented guy. Not quite. <laughs> I was a nice guy. And I'd been trained because of the way I was raised in a lot of ways to be the nice guy in a relationship. So when she sort of asked me out and ran the relationship, I was like, sure, I'll go along for the ride. But then she got to the point where she was like, where's the guy I thought she was, I was? Where, where's this? She wanted somebody that reminded her of her grandfather, who was like this cowboy in the, the old West, or the, actually back in the Midwest, who like ran the show, did everything right, and took charge of everything. I wasn't doing any of that. And so she thought I was going to do that because the way she saw me originally, she got a first impression and ran with it. And it wasn't accurate. I honestly, transparently, I was, I was a, I was a nice guy. I wasn't, I wasn't strong in that sense because I had the, the belief system or the rules that it was either nice guy or macho bad guy, bad boy. And I wasn't willing to do that one at all because all the work I'd done was so loving and spiritual and kind. I didn't go into that arena because that looked like backwards, like we, we were stepping backwards. And thankfully, about three months after the breakup, after I was <laughs> basically praying to God, like, give me a clue, give me a sign, show me something. <clears throat> I got introduced through this woman I met out of the blue to the masculine and feminine conversation. Through some teachers I met who I love dearly to this day, this is, this is like mid-2007 that changed my life. And really for the first time showed me that being a, what I didn't know at the time was a healthy male, which was masculine heart, guidance, strength, was what really planted me in my truth and also led me to the understanding because one, one of the core teachings I got was that for me as a masculine man, which I now own and live, was that I had to find my purpose, my calling, my why. If I didn't have that, I would never have anything. And any relationship I did would 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 sort of be in that spot, like occupying the wrong spot, basically. And so I really got clear on these to find out what my why was. And in that first retreat I went to the seminar it was funny because when we went to the seminar the men and women sat separately and coming from a Jewish background originally that reminded me of being a kid when we went to go, sit, go to temple synagogue where the men and women sit separately so I was going this is going to be kind of weird but anyway the whole weekend was really powerful because the men would go out every couple of hours into another room and explore and, and own masculine qualities and women would do the same thing with their feminine qualities and I didn't know what they were doing, of course, they're a different room. But what we happened is each time we came back, we'd like do more sharing, more dialogue, more demos, et cetera, et cetera. By the end of the weekend, the last break, when we came back to the room, we stood facing each other rather than sitting side by side. And when I stood there, very grounded in my masculine heart, like, like into the earth, like deep connection to who I was. At the same time, looking across the room at all these women facing me in their feminine magnificence and beauty and dynamism, I was on my knees in worship. I just knew that was my dedication from that point forward. My life would be dedicated to serving the feminine. And just to, just to sidebar for a second, just for those people listening, masculine and feminine are qualities of who we are. We carry both inside of ourselves. Men generally align more with masculine. Women generally align more with feminine. But it doesn't mean all are, just to be clear, because some, some men and some women switch different, whatever it is. And, and yeah, anyway. So... That was the pivot point for me. And having had this background in spiritual psychology and, and counseling and coaching, everything else I'd done over the years, I realized that my work was to be like speaking to this work in the world and helping women particularly because they're dedicated to the feminine, remember their hearts and learn how to stand true in their feminine hearts. Because most of the women I dated in my history were basically being more macho than I was. You know, I, I was dating women who ran the show. They were the women I was attracted to because they were so strong and so tough. But I had missed the boat completely what I was looking at. Women weren't in the feminine, the ones I was dating, because I was so unaware of this piece. And so I've been dedicated ever since. I mean, the book I wrote was really from the place of everything I'd learned over that previous 25 years that I knew would work. But the piece, it's like the key to the whole thing was, was living in my masculine heart. That was probably my biggest awakening and also it was the it was the key open the door to everything else do you know listening to you speak as well like it's it's so it's so uncanny when i when i hear everything you've just said like because the, the synergy is just 
you know, like for me, like what you just said was so, so palpable in so many different ways. Like, uh, you know, like, like, for example, the repeating patterns, the masculinity and, you know, so many different things you just mentioned. And my journey was very similar as well. And starting off in a very spiritual uh, university setting and things like that. And it was just like what, everything you said, it mirrors my journey as well. I, and the other thing you mentioned as well about the whole um being either the nice guy or the masculine macho guy and, and it's funny isn't it because it's one thing i say to people is that you you know the, for most people there's either it's either or but never yeah. a blending of both and that's one of the things that i teach people uh and i think it's so fundamental that you don't have to be you can still be macho and alpha but not be a dick you know not be an asshole but you could sp still be a spiritual warrior an amazing human being and help people but carry the essence of some of those traits, the powerful traits, which actually are there to serve you and other people. I think that's incredible. That's a lovely, lovely journey as well. Did, did I hear you mention, sorry, as well, I think it cuts slightly for, for me. You've got a book out as well, did you say? Yeah, a book I wrote back in 2012. Um, uh, what's that book called? It's called 50 Ways to Love Your Lover. You can get it on Amazon. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, no, it's great. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll definitely check that um, out as well. I'll try and include the link for that later. Thank you. Um, but what I will speak to, though, is the difference between masculine and macho. Because I've I've had a bit of a pet peeve with the term toxic masculinity. Because for wow. me, masculinity is never toxic. The truth is, what it is is toxic machoism. Yeah. The way I would say, or machismo. And the way I would differentiate the two between mas masculine and machoism, which is a, which we don't always get, is that the way I descri describe machoism because I saw it so much was basically men who were. Built from, we're basically running from the neck up. It's all mental, ego-driven, my way, the highway, screw you, I'm winning, and I win, you lose. That's kind of the culture of the machoism. That's where the bad boy was. Like, always oh, that, right? <laughs> well, yeah. It was bypassing <laughs> in between. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Whereas the, whereas the masculine man, which is a thing I did not know at this, until this point, so I totally was oblivious, was a masculine man. And I had half, the, half, the, I'd half it in place, which is an open heart. Because a masculine man has a compassion and care for the world. And he's also got a strong spine, direction and clarity. Like he knows why he's here, what he's up to, making a difference. So yes, being a spiritual warrior, but not spiritual warrior climbing on top of other people, but a spiritual warrior taking everything, everybody with him. And that's the difference between, between macho and masculinity and why I I virulently, violently, no, virulently is a better word, stand up. <laughs> Masculinity, yeah. Behemoth, right? that's a good one as well <laughs> that one yeah, yeah. That's good. but the thing is but the thing is masculinity is not toxic the toxicity comes from being macho mm. 100% i did a, obviously it's international men's day today as well so i did a oh, yeah. post about this as well because i in fact i did a post about this and i thought i'd get lots of hate because I, I said it one of my pet peeve terms at the moment is toxic toxic masculinity i absolutely love that term and i think it's so damaging as well like you know i think it's such a callous term that has been coined and people don't realize the impact it's having um I, i'm sure you get this and i see this too that you know you, on one side you've got women who are like you know why in the most gross form why are men not approaching me and men on the flip side sorry let me just turn my alarm off i keep disrupting myself today and men on the flip side who are um am i over encroaching on, on this lady's femininity or independence and i think that we've created this this paradigm which has put both sides stuck in limbo uh, and, you know, it's just it's such a shame. And I see it day in, day out. And I have to reassure a lot of the people I work with. Look, you know, I you know, I mentioned this in a TikTok video that I did the other day that I, I'm not a mind reader. I don't know if someone wants to be approached or not. But, you know, if I wasn't married, I would still approach happily. I don't care what's going on right now, because, the you know, the only way you ever know is if you have a go. And that's the, the ultimate truth. And sure, someone might say to me, you know what? piss off. I don't want to be spoken to today. I don't want a guy hitting on me today. Fair enough. I'll, I'll accept it and I'll walk away. Um, because, you know, some people are just not in that frame of mind and that's fine. But I'd still rather have a go because in having a go, I could meet some incredible people, make some amazing friends. You know, sometimes it led to something, sometimes it didn't. But I think that's just, you know, it's fundamental. And I think that's so powerful. I'm glad we've touched on this today as well, especially on, the, you know, this particular day. It's so important. Yeah. Um, uh, what was it about that you discovered about yourself in, in that process that kind of um, led you to realign? Like, what was the what was the the, the epiphany and the, the the insights that you gained from all of this? Wow. Um, 
well, just to, to put in context, up until this point, I'd had at that point, I think seven careers. Um, <laughs> wow, that's a lot. <laughs> I started out computer programming mainframes when I was in college, and that's what took me to to work in Europe and then over to America. Um, but when I went freelance, I really got disheartened by that. So then I worked in in uh, customer service. Then I did some other things. I was a professional photographer, graphic designer, went printing this. I mean, I had a bunch of stuff. But none of those were really my purpose. They were just things I just did. It was the next thing showed up. Somebody said, hey, you want to do this? I went, sure, no problem. I've got lots of skills because I'm very adaptable. But however, it, none of those were my calling. And the biggest thing for me was just the exploring. And one of my favorite books I refer to to people is by David Data called The Way of the Superior Man. Yeah. And chapter seven, which I mentioned earlier, is about a man's purpose comes before his relationship. I had always put relationship as the highest pinnacle. It didn't, I mean, it sounds romantic, it sounds wonderful, except it's not functional. And we men need to have something that drives us in the world that is beyond our relationship. And it's what's interesting because I watched my dad, um, my dad passed away a couple, couple about a month ago, and my mom passed away oh, in 2012. Wow, I'm so sorry to hear that. It's quite interesting. I mean, my dad was 95. It wasn't like he'd had, he'd had you know, he had a long life. Mm. And I'm grateful I did all the work I did in my spiritual journey to heal any relationship issue I had with him because, frankly, it made his transition a lot more peaceful and, and actually more, um, it was like a sense of kindness versus grieving at the time for me. But the thing was, he was raised in the culture where machoism was, was king. And growing up, I always felt like, I couldn't fit in the way my dad did. I was first born, so I was the eldest. So I, I should have copied and followed his footsteps. No, <laughs> I did everything differently. You know, I went to college, which was, I mean, none of, my, none of my family went to college. So I went to college. I moved to the United States, moved out of the country. My brother's since moved to Italy, so he's out of the country too. But the thing was <clears throat> that the paradigm that I was raised in was rubbing me the wrong way. I guess to put it that way, I was like, I didn't fit in. And one of the chapters, which I also love in David Ayer's book, which is um, which is interesting now, looking back a month ago, was live as if your father is dead. Because a lot of us, a lot of our sons, when we're raised, we have this wiring inside. It's not taught, taught to us, but it's built in. Is that, you know, dad is like the big chief. He's the king. He's the, he's the boss. So we should never overstep what he did. And so part of our wiring when we go out to work and get independent is we use that as the benchmark. We don't exceed. And for some men, it's like it's ignored completely. But for a lot of men, it's in subconscious wiring or the, or the unconscious belief system that we can't do that because we might shame our dad if we do better than him. And that chapter was, I didn't realize how much it played out in my life. You know, income learning. I did a lot of things that way beyond my dad did, but yet certain fundamentals, which for my dad was always about being the breadwinner, was I don't exceed what he, what he earned. I had no idea what he earned, frankly. But in my mind, it was like, don't exceed that, whatever that is. So hold myself back and don't play big. And so playing small was what I did for many, many years. And so in this work of transformation, understanding what a masculine hearted man was about, I really got clear that that was not a limit anymore. Because I found, first of all, I saw what it was and I saw it wasn't true. But I was carrying it around like it was the truth for many years without even knowing it was in there. It's like one of these things that you discover going, I believe that without realizing it. And so it changed everything when I let go, that one go. So that was probably the biggest epiphany I had to change everything after this work began for me. And I've been in this work. I mean, I, I studied with four different teachers over probably, well, still, I did, a, I finished a course last month. So I'm still doing this work and studying myself because I love this stuff. Wow. That's incredible. What a journey. What a journey. What, uh, what an insight as well. I think that um, I, I don't know how many people are familiar with that. Well, I, I've come across that book and I've read, read excerpts and I've read the whole book, but I wonder how many people out there see a title of that type of title in this day and age and think, oh, I'd never read anything like that, you know, without understanding it and what it's about. Um, but yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. So let, let's touch upon what we uh, initially penciled as the title for this as well because I think that's an interesting one is not but one that I haven't necessarily ever spoken about before as well which is about codependency and what that means for people what that looks like why it happens and what then can be done about it especially if it's a personality trait and a repeating personality trait as well so can you give us some idea of what it is what it looks like you know how people fall into that cycle and what they can do right. about it well, my, my favorite go-to is easy one quote I use from Jeremy Maguire, which is you complete me. Oh, yeah. That's the epitome of codependency because if you complete me, which sounds so romantic, so 
wonderful. So, oh, it's like he gets me sort of thing. He's like, no, <laughs> because you completely applied, you're not complete, which is the, what codependency is about in the simplest form. What codependency is, is this feeling that we need a relationship to feel whole, to feel complete, to be loved. And yes, being loved in a relationship is amazing, but we often abdicate our own role to take care of ourselves, to love ourselves, to respect ourselves. So the failing with codependency, and this doesn't just tie to romantic relationship, because we have codependent relationships with the government, with taxes, with the police, with authority, because we oftentimes abdicate our role of being our own authority. So it's more than just romantic relationship, it's all relationships. And the trap is that we'd never really take ownership of ourselves and step into our truth and into our authority about who we are. And so what happens, I mean, to put it into historical context, uh, so you know, I'm using my parents as a model, my parents got married in the early 50s. And back then, women didn't have jobs. I mean, I, I, read, I read a stat recently, apparently women didn't have credit cards until 1971, wow. which is 50 years ago. It's like, what? Yeah. Or 40, 40 years ago. It's like, what happened? So we, there's been a long journey for women's beings. I don't say second class, but being less than. Men ran the show, you know, you know goes the structure, and codependency was the way. So men would basically court women from their parents' house, you know, sort of take them out and marry them and then move into their house. And back then, women didn't drive. I mean, generally speaking, because there are exceptions, of course. Mm -hmm. Women didn't drive, didn't have the bank accounts, didn't run, didn't have their own jobs. They were stay-at-home moms. And so for us, for that relationship paradigm that I saw in my parents, that's what my mum was. Until my, actually, she... Thankfully, when my brother and I went, were out of school, she went to work at the school to do like she was doing what you know dinner lady, you know the, the lunch the lunch crew they do. Yeah. But she wanted to do something, and then she worked in the Red Cross. So my mum got that second win to go become independent later on. But growing up, that wasn't her culture. So then we went through this place which was very codependent. And um, there's a, a TV show from in America which was which was back in the '60s called All in the Family with Archie Bunker. I think it was. I think it was um, till death to us part with the English version. Yeah, with, I remember that. Yeah, so basically that paradigm was what you know the, the barking really um, house like owning man who's like run the show, bully aggravation. The woman was the meek housewife. The set at the same time, neither one could live without the other. They were so enmeshed, and that's what codependency is—an enmeshment of beliefs that you can't live without the other person. And again, it sounds romantic because we've been trained that way. You know, romance means being meshed, be stuck together, be in, um, be indivisible. Well, yes and no. And I'll get to the, the better part later on. But basically, so codependence is the first step we were raised with because survival was the key. How do you survive without somebody else? You need somebody else to survive with. Then in the 60s and 70s, the sexual revolution, women's liberation, feminist movement got really started and women got their independence, so to speak. And a lot of women basically discovered they didn't need a man to live. They could get their own jobs, their own bank accounts, their own cars, their own apartments, their own life, and didn't need a man. So in these, especially in the 80s and early 90s, a lot of women were fiercely independent because they had been waiting for or praying for this for years. And for us men, this is where I was definitely finding dating challenging, I was finding women who were like this with us because they were running the show as much as we were. You know, they were, they were um, independent, didn't need anything. So to court a woman was almost impossible, at least my, my experience was. It was almost a negotiation, which is the independent stage, where men and women were independent, but they weren't, they were not only codependent, but they're independent. The work I've been doing for the last 15 years with the teacher I studied with is really about the um, evolution of relationship to the interdependent stage. Because the reality is, when you're in a relationship, there are things from your partner that you can't do yourself, which is wonderful. However, you can't, you don't die if they're not there. Like you can take care of yourself, you can do other things. And for and this is one of the challenges in relationship is that we've been trained by everything, by Hallmark and every movie and love song for the last 50, 60 years that you can't live with the other, like the other person. The truth is we can, but we don't know that we can. We forget that. And so when we come into dependence, we end up, instead of being two people facing each other, stuck to each other, we can't see past the other person because you're nose to nose. Again, sounds romantic, but it's not. It's actually two people side by side facing the same direction. That's what healthy relationship is because you know there are things the other person can do for you, can help you with, and can help you become better. But you, but also you're working on your own goals, your own vision too. So a relationship can actually have parallel paths in a way. So it's, it can be unified or it can be independent. But the, both people know they're in relationship, but they also have their, their um, 
freedom to do as they wish. Now, I'm not speaking about, because I have an issue about, I personally think about monogamy versus polyamory, so I'm thinking about loyalty as well. But it's about the vision, like you have your own careers, you have your own things you do because you want to bring your your uniqueness to the relationship. And so when we evolve beyond codependency, we learn that we're both whole individual beings. So relationship is not 50-50, it's 100-100. It's additive. That makes beautiful sense as well. And I think that uh, you, you touch upon something which is quite interesting and another interesting paradigm that is happening sort of more and more in this day and age is that ideology of being in a relationship, yet potentially living separately, uh, you know, only seeing each other at certain times, um, you know, uh, only doing certain things together or whatever. And that's that's becoming quite a common thing, actually, com common theme. And I, I don't know about you, but that for me tips still tips the scales on the other side, the independent side, overly independent side, because I think to myself that, and again, it's confusing people, I think, mm -hmm. um, it, because you know, then they, no one's sure what's right or what's not right. And they don't even want to say what, what they really want. But, you know, they, they're kind of thinking that this is the new norm. Now I'll, I'll just do this because other people are doing it rather than what is it they really want. Uh, and so that's something I'm seeing a lot. Is that is that something you've come across a lot in, in your, the work you're doing or people who are coming to you? There, I would say that some people are afraid of getting back in relationships. They worry about the old pattern showing up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What are the wiring we have? And I understand that totally. I mean, again, I went through relationships after relationship, but the same thing happened. I went, yeah, I know this now. <laughs> so a lot of my work when the clients is helping them break the break the cycle of the old wiring so they can actually be free to live differently. Um, the other part is that this relationship dance is something in a way we're studying new. And um back in the day. There was this thing, like you were saying about men, you know, we go and ask women out. And yes, we've gone through the Me Too conversation in the last few years and we've got a lot of challenge in the area. One thing I miss sort of from the old days was the handkerchief drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> back, in, back in London and I think back in the old West, where a woman would give the man a clue that she was interested by dropping a handkerchief. Then he would pick up the handkerchief to indicate he was interested too. It was this um, unspoken, nonverbal indication it's okay to proceed, so to speak. And we've lost that for many years. And so almost, the thing is the women can do things nowadays where they can like, you know, touch a man's arm or maintain eye contact, eye contact or, or do things with him that let him know she's interested. But then it's like, it's up to us to still be willing to like notice these things. Because a lot of times men have been, um, I was in the past myself, sometimes a bull in a china shop, you know, yeah. running forward. Oh, I like her. I'm going to just go, which is not healthy. So it's having this, preliminary um <laughs> conversation that's non-verbal to say are you interested yes i'm interested yes let's see where that goes and then start from there and that's one of the things that we're still figuring out navigating especially with the dating apps and with all the with people i mean social media is a dating environment too now even clubhouses mm. yeah so there's, so there's so many different venues you can meet somebody in how do you proceed in a way that is effective and so it is for me it's about taking the steps like one step at a time and then checking where you are to like verify that yes this is okay and kosher for both partners before you go diving in mm. so it's just yeah absolutely i often tell the story of my, me and my wife and you know i was you know not to sound braggy but I, I just got to a stage where i was very good at dating and i just kind of made it it was just a very simple part of my life in the same way some people are good at business right you know i just i got to a stage where it just wasn't complicated for me anymore uh and same with my wife you know like i i I use the example that, you know, we spoke, we messaged for about, you know, five minutes, I think it was before I got her number. We spoke on the phone. We arranged our first date. We went out two days later. We had three dates in the first week. We had 12 dates in the first month. And I remember it was on that um, that one month an anniversary. We actually went to see a football match. And it was actually my first ever football match as well that I'd ever been to see. And um, we, we kind of had that discussion about, you know, where we're heading. And, you know, we both thought, you know, we're, we're both pretty serious about, you know, seeing where this goes now. So we knew what we were doing from then on. Um, but it was that stage, 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 stage thing. And, and, and interestingly as well, I did another TikTok video a few months ago, which is quite interesting as well, because um, um, I talked about how to stop people becoming your texting pen pal. Because um, I have a friend who goes through similar situations where she just ends up in a messaging to ping pong and that's all it all it ends up being 
So I gave her I gave her a message and I said, look, send this and see what happens. And he did. Within about two hours, he called her back. Um, and I had a bit of an epiphany at that moment. And I thought, actually, what I said to her or said to her to write actually can be used for every stage of the relationship, like moving to the next stage. But if only we are candid enough to do these things and say these things rather than leaving things unsaid, well, they actually progress. Um, and, I, and, and like you said, right, it's it's being able to have that conversation, uh, not leaving it unsaid. Can you then progress far more easily than if you don't? It's like it reminds me of uh, I don't know if you ever watched Friends, but that scene with Friends, uh, sorry, with Ross and Mona and the whole episode where where are we? And, uh, you know, Ross is trying to just fumble around his words, just cannot say, you know, she's going a bit faster than him. And he's thinking, I, I, we are here in this guy. Like, you know, it just fumbles off in his words. And uh, it just re always reminds me of that scene. I think it's so true that. Uh, and I, again, I see it so often just because people leave things unsaid they just don't know and then they wander around in limbo and that for me is worth and worse than i hate limbo it's worse yeah. than, i just want to know where i stand and then i'll move on um but being not knowing is so difficult and i think that that's one of the plagues of modern relationships is the unknown and unsaid absolutely it is it's the trap we fall into again because that we have got so much in society it's made it harder for us to date in some ways again me too conversations mm. and the new the man the man's movement and it's interesting because there's a lot of um i'm gonna say this carefully there's been a lot of politis politis politicization politicization mm. camera right yeah. <laughs> of masculinity lately and it's false because again masculinity is not toxic machoism is and some of this um i won't say braggies on word but pushing this agenda forward in a political arena in the states is so messed up because it's creating a either or conversation mm -hmm. and so it's like if you're not you know and, and because they now made it party at party aligned at least that's what one of these guys attempting and he doesn't even demonstrate masculine qualities which is what cracks me up mm. but because people aren't talking about this conversation enough people conflate uh, masculinity with machoism and think that's healthy and that's the mistake that is really in the it's, it's in the DNA or in the culture. It's in the culture. We don't have. We haven't gone beyond that way. And because in no ways, America is a very new country. It hasn't evolved yet to that level. And we haven't had good role models in leadership. I don't know where in the world. I mean, there's probably a few countries that have good leaders that are really masculine, but our models aren't demonstrating to us how to be that way. So yeah. it's like us at the grassroots making it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, by the way, touching upon what we spoke about earlier, the whole kind of idea of repeating patterns, because I think that's another important uh, one. So tell us a little bit from your experience, what people, again, why people end up in a situation where they seem to keep attracting the same kind of person over a same outcome over and over again, uh, and where that comes from and what they could do about it. Um, I'll have to use, well, put myself on the chopping block and show Sarah some of my <laughs> tales. Um, well, the one example I already gave about my relationship scenario where I would not be the masculine man, I wouldn't step up. That was happening several times in a row. I'll tell you where that came from in a minute. So let me put another one on the table too. When I was younger, like I, basically when I was in college and beyond, so teens and 20s, I would be in a relationship for, with somebody for maybe a few months. It would be, it would better last a month oftentimes because there'd be an argument, an upset between us and I I'd break up and leave. That happened because I was raised in the family where we didn't argue. Literally, that wiring I had as an adult in my relationship and also the being the nice guy was all tied into my childhood upbringing. And this is where all our patterns start. Um, to explain first what that is, is that basically from zero, we're not, we're not born with user manuals. You know, surprise, surprise. We don't get like, a, you know, we don't get come at the birth canal with a user manual in hand saying, this is how you raise me. You know, it doesn't work that way. So parents raise us the way they know how best way they know how which oftentimes is clumsy at best and us little ones from zero to five six seven years old are looking around at the world going this is how life works we learn by doing same as any like you know any puppy or kitten learn from their adults the humans do the same thing we learn from our adults the way life is now that can be good news or bad news <laughs> depending how you're raised <laughs> and oftentimes what happens is 
the parents who are raising us have no clue they're doing this because they're demonstrating by what they're doing, how they speak to each other, how they love each other, how they do things together and how they treat us. That's what we take in. And most parents don't know this. So they don't know that they're teaching their kids by demonstration how to be an adult. Now, that's all well and good because we basically become, it's like around, again, five, six, seven years old, our conscious mind, which is our gatekeeper, comes online, so to speak. It's like suddenly goes, okay, I'm now going to decide what I'm taking in. And it has this, it's like a bouncer at a club. You know, it's like saying, okay, I'm only going to let certain things through. But the problem is the club's already full. Well, that's mm. stuff that you learned the first five years. So we get imprinted by that upbringing by our, our parents. And so as adults, we tend to recycle the patterns we learn as kids, not knowing we're doing it. Because again, it's all it's all in our con subconscious behind that gate that the, the, the guardian of the gate, the, the conscious mind is keeping protected. My dad was a very, well, not very, but he was a truly ma macho-driven man, meaning he ran the show his way, it was, he, he was in charge. He had some issues around women and race and, and immigration and stuff like that, which I was averse to. I, even at that age, like in my teens, I was like, I do not belong to this, don't fit this. And again, being raised Jewish, as I mentioned earlier, after my permits for 13, being told I was a man, I was like, how do I do that? I'm 13 years old, I have no clue. And my dad was the model. I went, I don't want that. So it basically went the other the other direction. So my dating life was I was the nice guy because my dad wasn't that growing up. So I went the opposite direction. And then also because in my house, I remember as a kid, we never argued. My parents never argued in front of the kids. So I didn't have a framework where love and arguments go together. So my own dating life where there were arguments, I realized, well, if there's an argument, there's no love, I'm leaving. That was my wiring and my programming. So all of us carry that belief. I mean, these are small examples because I know many of my clients and friends have gone through abuse or neglect or abandonment or addictions from their upbringing because that's what they were raised with. So they took it on as adults. So oftentimes I see, I see adults and I've seen clients who share their journey of what they've been through in the last relationship and the one before that and the one before that. And I say, well, what's your parents' relationship like? And oftentimes they go, oh, now I see. That's where it comes from. So we are imprinted at young age. And I would say every one of us is imprinted. And some of us are lucky with a healthy upbringing, but it's rare. Some of us are raised with very challenging environments. And so until we figure that out and look at how we can change the wiring, um, in my work, I do a lot of work reparenting and we're doing parts integration, which is an NLP structure, that you can change that belief system once and for all so it no longer runs your life. Because these, these automatic programming, the subconscious, runs your life because it is much more powerful than a conscious mind is. So once you start to um, rewire that, then it changes. Have you any like uh, case studies where you've worked with people who, and there was a particular pattern that you helped someone break? Um, I, I think back to some of the people I speak to often, and you know, often it's uh, uh, like you know, typical example: um, someone attracting the same kind of guy, or the relationship ends at the same point in time. You know, it's usually. Right. They're very nice and full on at first, or or actually another common one is attracting the type of person who uh, never seems to arrange an actual date. Like always says, yeah, we should meet up. We should, but actually never, never actually then ends up happening. Um, but if you're someone who's in that position, then um, and and have you come across those? And what did you actively do? What was the what was the process you took them through? Um, well, let's see. I don't think any clients we like to like reference. Um, for one of my clients, basically, was that she always would found she would always be around men who dominated because she was raised by a dominant father. That was based, I mean, I'm giving you the shorthand version. And what we had to go back to was really for her the way I worked with her was to really um, have her talk to her inner child. Her, I mean, this inner child work stuff really works, but to basically to reparent and retrain her younger self to see that wasn't the right way, wasn't the healthy way, wasn't what, what she wanted. So, with a 2020 hindsight of the adult she could re-educate her inner child to see life a different way. So in simple terms, what we, I mean, it took three months, but we basically rewired the programming so that her belief system is now aligned to her adult values. And so she could choose differently because she knew better, but she wasn't doing better because even though she, as an adult, she like, I wanted this, this, and this, her younger self was running the show and putting her at a lower level, getting these, these dominant men. And so what she discovered was, first of all, she discovered her power because she'd basically been suppressing it in every relationship. She didn't dare step up because she had to be with these 
dominant men like her father was, when she realized oh. she didn't need to do that anymore, she became so free. You know, she started doing, she took, she basically basically started doing another business. She changed directions in life completely. And the biggest piece was that she didn't need a man anymore. Cause that's the thing she'd had a rule. Like she needed a man to run the show cause she couldn't do it herself. And afterwards, I mean, she's, she, I, I spoke to her, she's dating. She's not in a relationship at the moment, but to really see that she could run her own life the way she wanted and she was free. And that was huge. So that was probably the biggest one. I remember that one happening. The most recent client I worked with, um, as soon as I shared my own stories, I had to go back and see where the wiring was inside myself because I, first of all, I knew that, um, arguments aren't fatal. <laughs> one of mine, the arguments don't mean love is gone. In fact, oftentimes arguments mean love is there, which is why the argument started. But I know that at the time. So those sort of things changed my own beliefs. So, yeah, I think, I think that was one of mine as well. When I was younger, I, I, um, or, or arguments, which I just had a very unhealthy representation of arguments and stuff. And so I used to, generally speaking, avoid conflict uh, yeah. <laughs> most opportunities. Uh, and then, uh, funny enough, right, my wife and I don't argue that often, but um, um, I think lockdown did put us to the test a little bit. But what actually put us to the test the most was when we got a puppy, when we got a dog. Uh, and we just had such different ideas of how to raise him, how to train him, that we clashed so much. But it, it was it was it was fantastic because it really uh, took us to another whole nother dimension in our relationship and uh, and taught us a lot actually about how to you know how to argue constructively and kind of you know we had our moments where we just pissed each other right. off. Uh, but it was, it was, it was, it, I think it was, I look back and I just look back on it with fondness because I think actually we grew so much as a couple during that phase and um, um, we don't have children. So this is the closest thing we're going to have to having it, you know, a child. So he is our little baby. And so we consider ourselves parents in this respect. And so, so, but it just added a whole, you know, different layer to, to our relationship, but it was a, it was a beautiful layer, but yeah, that was definitely a big, big one for me as well. Um and like you, I think a big one for me as well was that the night I majorly had the nice guy syndrome um, pre-2008. I was one of those guys and um, it took a lot of work to escape that. But it was I, I realized how uh, that I would almost describe as toxic um, mm -hmm. only in the sense that I mean, I, I won't speak for everyone, but I have seen it a lot where one of the things I say to people is under that nice is buried a lot of expectation is buried yeah. a lot of, you know, a lot of um, ulterior motives. And I think that that's why it's toxic. And so to have that and hold on to that is not healthy. And this is why you have to explore that that other side of yourself and, and learn to merge the two. Otherwise, you can stay in that trap for a very long time. In fact, I would say that um, the nice guy is oftentimes a... It's almost it's almost the point of, of one. It's running um, subconscious. No, the wrong word. Unspoken expectations. Yeah. So the on the in in that nice guy, and also it's an abdication of role, abdication of yeah. responsibility, which is which really sucks. Um, this this oh the, the codependent piece you're talking about the thing with your wife the arguments con you said something which is important constructive versus destructive arguments. Yeah. The thing about arguments is. And I didn't know this till I learned this one in, in my master program was about taking ownership. The challenge for most people is when they argue, it's about make it's about attacking the other person. You know, you did this to me, you screwed me up, you may be wrong, which is again codependency. Like or being right, you know, right? As well, you know, that's the the self-validation side, right? You know, the, the I, I'm the right one in this. Not only that, but also we give the other person the power over our feelings. Yeah. You made me feel bad. Did you? <laughs> You know, I, I have a video series that I shot with a friend of mine it's on YouTube called uh, Cracking the Codependency Code. And one of the things I talk about is that codependency is basically in a lot of ways is giving somebody else your puppet strings, making them your puppet master. Mm -hmm. It sounds kinky, but it's not. It's just not healthy. Because <laughs> the recognition, That's recognition a whole other conversation. <laughs> conversation. Yeah. But the recognition is, is that we, we advocate our role of taking responsibility. So when we say, you know, when you do this, I get upset. That's accurate. So the truth is like, so why am I getting upset by what you did? Let me figure that out. And then when you come back and say, okay, so now I see what's going on. It's like um, one of my teachers who I studied with recently again, Alison Armstrong talks about, you know, in relationship, what if it happens is that we get really upset with the other person because the trash hasn't been taken out. Like the woman expects the man to take the trash out. It's one of those rules in the house sometimes. Yeah. And 
the truth is that because we as one of those gifts of the masculine man is we're very, very good at getting target acquisition to so focus on something, getting the goal, going for what we want, which means the downside is we don't always focus on what's around us. Like we're single focus one at a time, whereas the feminine is more of an ability to multitask and have the ability to have what, what Alison calls diffuse awareness, meaning that she oftentimes notices us and the dog and the trash and everything else at the same time. We don't. So what tends to happen is we move busy with a work project or taking care of the puppy and we forget about the trash. Yeah. But she hasn't. <laughs> and so this thing is, you know, the, 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 the thing that happens is that oftentimes I've heard, I mean, I've heard so many times, one will say to the man, the trash won't take itself out. Which is so um, passive aggressive, first of all. But secondly, it's the indication is like what she should what, what she could have said to him was in the example was, you know, I get upset when I'm when I feel like you're not taking care of me because what what's underneath it all is that she thinks that by not taking the trash out she doesn't he doesn't love her anymore. And this is all the stuff that's going on without even being said. So recognizing that we have the opportunity to raise the conversation and take arguments to a level of communication instead of just throwing crap at each other. We can raise the quality of our conversations in all levels so that when we can talk to each other about upsets and other things, instead of being codependent about, you know, you, you wounded me because you said something or you, you, you know, you're ignoring me or you don't love me anymore because you didn't take the trash out to, Oh, I see now why I'm getting upset. The biggest thing about that is arguments tend to get shorter because they're not going to become, um campaigns they're just going to become oh i now realize what's going on let's change that let's let's renegotiate and make it easier yeah I, I love that and i think that's so true and so powerful um so what else would you like to share with us today regarding codependency what do you think that we haven't discussed that's important to know about and to um even even as a kind of self-detection and understanding ourselves that whether we're the, we're the type of individual who does get codependent, you know, living out of each other's pockets or even stifling the other partner as well, you know, and not letting them have that freedom or to do whatever they were doing in their life. You know, what, what, what about that side of things as well? What can someone do uh, as a reference of, you know, point of self-reference of self-education and understanding, you know, who they are, recognizing their own signs and actually then dealing with it in a, in a relationship setting? Well, first, as a preface, I'll say that for most of us, we don't know how powerful we really are. Mm. Codependency is a, it's like, it's basically, again, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to put 15 thoughts through once, it's getting <laughs> challenging. The, the, the thing about you complete me, that, that sense of not being whole is a paradigm that we live in a lot of times. So we don't own our power and our authority because we're not feeling complete. So that's the thing. So ways we can detect ourselves is oftentimes is, well, the easiest thing is to notice when we're getting upset. Because 90% of the time when we get upset, and that's an arbitrary number I'm throwing out, is we're upset because of something we didn't do or we felt somebody else didn't do, did to us. And then we start the blame game. So when we feel any sense of guilt or resentment or blame or shame, those are my four favorite ones to go to we tend to be living in a codependent place um, because resentment to use the, use the old analogy is like, you know, taking poison, expecting the other person to die is the implication that somebody else hurt our feelings and we're going to be upset about it from now on. The other person's oblivious. They hurt our feelings. We feel upset. So why would we want to spend a time in pain and suffering? Mm. So that's the thing about changing our relationship with ourselves and doing the work. I, I have a big passion about forgiveness work because it's one of my favorite tools to use in my own work. When we forgive ourselves, because it's all an inside job. Um, there's a, I'm trying to remember, Richard, Richard Buck had a book out called Running from Safety, which talks about inner child work, and he talks about forgiveness as part of that process. And the way that he frames it is that basically forgiveness is the key to the jail cell we put ourselves in when we got judgmental. Because all judgment in the place of resentment and blame and other things is making other people wrong and then feeling upset about it. And the funny thing is, it usually isn't a righteousness about it because even righteousness can be that place that is limiting ourselves because righteousness is an ego position. Someone with righteous because they did something wrong. I'm feeling better about myself because of that. That's still dependent upon them being bad. So if they change, our plan is screwed. <laughs> so it's important yeah. that we take care of ourselves and learn how to live. I am saying in, in a sense, independently, but learn, but not based on other people's feelings or other people's actions, which is why, Relationships are 
can be so much healthier when we start to recognize that our partner's upset isn't our responsibility and our upset isn't our partner's responsibility. Now, having said that, <laughs> when somebody gets upset with the other person and then blames them for something, the other person can get defensive about that, obviously. But the recognition is you don't have to jump in, in the pit with them. It's like having empathy versus sympathy. One, again, these are, these are wonderful metaphors I use, I've learned, is that the difference between sympathy and empathy for people who don't know is that empathy is seeing somebody fall down a hole and loan down a rope to help them climb out. Sympathy is when you see somebody fall down a hole, you throw the rope in and jump in after them because misery loves company. Yeah. So learning to be empathic means that when someone's upset, definition, by the way, I love that. I can't remember where I found it. It's not mine. I'm, I'm not claim ownership, <laughs> but I do use it a lot. But the thing is, is when we get when somebody gets upset, oftentimes we don't like learn how to take our own feelings into account. We get enmeshed with our upset, or we get upset with them, or we. Uh, my other thing was, as I said earlier, I shut down and leave. And so I learned now I can be in a place where I can witness that one of the biggest gifts we men can give our women when they're in their feminine upset is to stay present, not to shut down, not to run away, not try to fix it, just stay present because 90% of what she's upset about isn't even us anyway. Yeah. So we can be in a place where we can hold a space. So there's lots of pieces of the puzzle that can work, but the truth is coming back to really loving ourselves and owning our, owning our own authority. It's probably where the gift is yeah i love that i love that that that's so true that's so true so powerful you've got me in the you've got me in one of these states now where i'm in that kind of like real thinking state now and i just absorbing everything you just said is so it's so true i'm so love sorry that. <laughs> no i'm not oh, apologize no i love it i love it uh thank you grace watching as well which is we're finally live on facebook which is fantastic um but uh yeah no for anyone who's watching this by the way um uh, Barry has been talking about codependency and uh, we've also talked about patterns as well, which is fantastic as well. So uh, we've covered a whole huge spectrum of things as well. And I always like to ask my guests a couple of um, uh, trick questions, not trick, fun questions, should we say, not trick questions uh, as we round off the podcast. But uh, um, I'm going to add an extra one today as well. What do you think? Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, we need to we need to challenge this as well, challenge everything. Uh, what, do think, what do you think is the biggest challenge when it comes to modern dating and relationships? And what do you think we could do about it? Oof. That's a whole other podcast, isn't it? Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it probably is. Yeah. There's part two coming. I think one of the biggest problems is we've got we we don't it, it we hang on say this. It's too easy to swipe. You know, and that's the thing with the dating apps. They've gotten easier and easier. Back in the old days, it was so much more invested in time and looking into who the other person is. Take the time to get to know somebody. You know, you, you may, like you were saying about, you know, now you're married, you don't go out dating, but you make new connections and you make new new relationships with possible business relationships. Take the time to get to know somebody. You know pretty clearly if that person's a no once you meet them. Maybe there's totally different political views or relation or par whatever the paradigm is, but be willing to discover at least. But most people haven't bothered doing that. They're too easy swiping because they're looking at one picture. Mm. So take the time to go deeper. That's probably my best recommendation. Yeah, and that nicely leads me on to the next question as well, which is that uh, I think uh, I've been asking this to all my recent guests, and I think it's a great question to ask. If there was one thing you could change about modern dating websites or apps, what would you change from everything that you learned about relationships now? What would you kind of change or add in or modify? <laughs> <laughs> what comes up right away is is it requires honesty it forces people to be honest in their presentation both their pictures and what they say in their profiles and everything else because <laughs> so many people don't do that you know and so i would say the biggest way we could change all these dating and relationship uh, apps is to is to i don't say force it's the wrong word but to like make sure people are honest in their communication that's probably the easiest thing to start with there's something more than that but that's a good place to start yeah, I think so as well, because <clears throat> obviously things like catfishing and, you know, um, I heard a complaint recently as well that was, you know, this person doesn't look like their profile picture. You know, they, they, they've aged 20 years since they posted it up and, you know, <laughs> things like that. I think that that's, a, that's definitely an interesting one. It'd be interesting to see how uh, what you what could be done to or how that could be implemented uh, in an app or a dating app scenario. Um, like the gesture, I guess. <laughs> I thought, well, that, that's an interesting one. There you go, right? A little lightly. Yeah. 
I think there's someone in the group who's got like a um, who's got an app that does like a background check or something, right, or, or, or something along those lines. Um, and scary I think that's, that's scary now that you need a background check before you even date somebody. It's like, are we that? Uh, have we gone down that far in our society that we need to do that now? That's the thing we're dealing with now. So yeah, it, it's it's a real shame, but but you know what shocks me more, Barry, is that people just won't even do their own little small amount of due diligence on someone. I think that that is you know even just checking they exist online or at least having that phone call first or you know seeing them on video call first or any anything like that. It's a, it's a, it's still amazing me how many people just don't do the bare minimum. Uh, or simple things like you know i always recommend like just tell someone where you're going a close friend a confidant or someone and then just report back once you're once you're back safe and well so they they know to expect to hear from you you know within a couple of hours and if, well, if they don't send a search party well the thing is that's why i'll say that basically I, I have an issue about this first date thing i would say you want to do a pre-date or a or a, first, or a what do you call it mm -hmm. a, a check at first where you meet somebody in public daytime we have your, you drive your own vehicle, you meet up in a neutral space where it's not close to your home, that sort yeah. of thing. And, and you do something cheap because there's no, then because the thing is, what sometimes people do is that when they spend a lot of money, they think they're owed something in return. That's codependency. Mm -hmm. If you go somewhere cheap like ice cream or coffee or a walk on the beach or somewhere else where a lot of public people are, then you get to know somebody on neutral territory. Yeah. It's much healthier. So that due diligence, at least that much. So I agree with you. Yes, we need to do that more consciously and putting more intention to be safe and to be respectful yeah. yeah my wife and i did that it was that was always my choice of first date which was usually coffee or an ice cream or walk in the park in fact walk in the park that's what my wife my, my my wife and i did uh which is something very simple and yeah. you know and it's interesting that you qualify it as a pre-date actually because i i think i said to people actually just do that as your first date because you know I know there are some people out there like, like, no, you must spend money on a first date. But I'm like, right. you may never see that person again. You just, all that happens is people end up kicking themselves in the rear and because they just regret it afterwards. So it's just not worth investing money in a first date. It just should be very simple. Like, you know, 10 bucks over a couple of coffees, that's fine. But, you know, going to, a, you know, a 150 pound restaurant, that's just, you know, for me, just lack, lack, yeah, lacking common sense. But, uh, but I agree with you as well. I think it's just the simple things that are the most fun as well anyway. So Absolutely. I, I say here, here to that, definitely. But yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, so, I mean, you know what? This has been such an enjoyable conversation, Barry. And like I said, I always love getting to know people for the first time on, on these podcasts as well, which is great. The third question? The, the third question? Oh, it's coming. Don't worry, I'm just about to round off on oh. that. <laughs> It's like you're hanging out. Yeah, it's coming. I almost forgot it there for a second. <laughs> um, no, but I, I, lo I love, I love these raw conversations. I think these, these are the best ones. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure at some point in the future we'll have a part two and do an even deeper dive as well. Which has been, it's just been fantastic getting to know you and, um, uh, and learning that you're an Essex boy as well. <laughs> Absolutely. No, so thank you for being part of the Feeling Inspired podcast. So that leads us nicely on to the last question, which is, of course, where where can people get your book and where can people find you online and how can they connect with you? Um, boy, well, quick list. Um, my book is either on Amazon or you go to my website, which is barrysober.com, easy to find because it's my name. Um, my book's there. Also on social media, I'm Barry Selby on LinkedIn, YouTube especially. I've got 1,200 1, and something videos on YouTube now. Basically, web show, things are done in Facebook Live, tons of content on YouTube, which is youtube.com slash Barry Selby. Um, Instagram is the real Barry Selby because my original name, Barry Selby, got um, hacked by somebody else. That was annoying. Yeah, I know it's annoying, but on, on Clubhouse, Barry Selby, basically, Barry Selby is pretty much everywhere. You can find me just on on Instagram, it's different because it's the real Barry Selby, just to be pedantic. <laughs> yeah, just to keep it fresh. I like it. No, uh, once again, a, a huge thank you coming on the podcast it's been an absolute pleasure uh to have you here and no doubt definitely we will reconnect again in the future as well uh and yeah and i'll make sure that obviously for anyone watching this if you're watching the replay or you're listening to the podcast as well i will include all the links so you can connect with barry if you've got any more questions or find him on youtube and uh, check out some of his videos as well which is great which is fantastic so uh thank you again an absolute pleasure barry really really enjoyed having you on my pleasure thank you for having me it's been a pleasure to meet you this way too
Oh yeah, definitely as well. And this is the joy, isn't it? Being able to connect with people all, all over the world and just, you know, have, have live conversations like this. I absolutely love it. So thank you. Stay with me. I'm going to end the broadcast to everyone else. You've been listening to the Feeling Inspired podcast with me. I'm so I can't get my words out at the moment. <laughs> um, I think it's the coffee, the sugar in my coffee is that got me all stuck together. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us and I'll see you on the next episode. So have a lovely weekend, everyone. Take care. Bye. Thank you.